with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 15. We're continuing in a series on the parables, and today we're coming across probably the most popular parable Jesus ever told. It was probably the most painted parable, one that resonates most closely with many of our hearts. It's the parable of the prodigal son. And now I'm going to dive right into this story. Um, I will say, throughout history, many have missed the main point of this parable. Probably because most of us are not Jewish. We're Gentile. We weren't ethnically Jew when we were born. And so the story of this wayward child that comes home resonates with anyone who was lost and comes to know Jesus. But within its context, there is another brother. And that's really what the story's about. Expressing God's heart for lost children. But there are two sons. And I think we'll see today that they're both lost and in need of coming home. And so... I'm going to walk through this. There's really two scenes. There's the first scene with the younger brother and then the second scene with the older brother. And so I'm going to take us step by step through this as the story unfolds and trust that the Lord will will prompt our hearts and lead us toward application in ways that would, would serve us. Verses 11 to 13, and he said, Jesus, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. I'm going to give a little bit of a backstory of some pieces we may not understand about this culture. We, we understand inheritance. Uh, many of us, though, we may not have a lot of inheritance coming to us. We understand that when our parents pass away, if they have any type of material possessions, monetary possessions, um, those are typically transferred to the children. And that's at, at death. Culturally, Um, especially according to Old Testament law, there was a lot of responsibility put on an elder brother. The oldest male child in the family had a large responsibility ahead of him. He was to take care of the family and his parents' passing. And so a double portion of the inheritance was given to him. So in this situation, with this younger brother asking for his inheritance with two brothers... Two-thirds would go to the older brother and a third to the younger. However, in the same chapter in Deuteronomy 21, where you have this division of inheritance, you also have laws on disrespectful children. And this request alone was disrespectful enough to justify this father having this son stoned to death. To, to, To... request your inheritance prior to a father's death 
would be a high insult in this culture. It's basically communicating to your father, I want your stuff, but I don't want you, and it would be better off if you were dead and I could move on with my life. And it's a a total statement of wanting to, to detach from the family. And yet we find in this parable, this father who acts quite differently than the law might allow for him to do. Even though he could punish his son severely, he grants the request and his son leads home. It's pretty obvious from the story that the heart, the heart of the son is not with his father. Even though he's in his house, his heart is not with his father. He has no desire for his father's care, his father's love, or his father's control. In fact, he wanted his inheritance So he could afford to flee to another country to get out from underneath the authoritative role of his father and indulge his worldly cravings. Which is what we all want when our hearts are far away from our Heavenly Father. We don't want accountability. We don't want anyone controlling us. We want to to give in to what our hearts crave. And that's what happened to this young son. So what happens next? Verses 14 through 16. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. What a sad condition to end up in. The son who had his heart detached from his father now found himself attaching to someone else. A citizen from this country in a great time of need. He had squandered everything that he had And a famine came on the land and he was in desperation. So desperate that he would enter into a humiliating shame of feeding and eating with pigs. Something that a Jewish person would never do. It was unlawful for them to own pigs or to touch them. They were unclean and this kid is longing to eat with them. He is at the bottom of his barrel. A son who had so much going for him back at home and now he's longing to eat with swine. A son who had lost his honor and who is now wallowing in shame. A son who was a free man who has now become a slave to a foreign person. A son who was well fed who's now facing starvation. A son who knew great peace in his father's prosperity and now is suffering despair. And my friends, this is where sin will take you. When your heart is not with your heavenly father, you will find yourself on this road. When the heart throws off restraint and is allured by independence and a lack of accountability we will find ourselves in a pit. 
And this is how sin works. It will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. It will cost you more than you're willing to pay. And it will never deliver on its promises. And our great enemy is a master of marketing sin. Many times we will drink poison just because of the bright, shiny label. And at the end of the day, it leads to death. I think we can all remember or we've all seen when elementary teachers ask kids what they want to be when they grow up. I was told today's the Indy 500, so maybe some kids want to be race car drivers, doctors. I think mine changed every couple weeks. I always wanted to be MacGyver. I don't really know what he got paid to do, but he was a cool dude. But you'll notice if you observe kids in their dreams in life, never do you hear a kid say, I want to grow up to be a murderer. I want to be an adulterer. I want to be a thief. No one says, I want to grow up and ruin my family and and lose everything that I have. Because sin is more subtle. It's more deceptive than that. All avalanches begin with a tiny snowflake. And one by one, inch by inch, the enemy moves us toward a path of destruction that will bury us alive. And then one day we end up face first in the mud, eating the trash and the scraps of this world. Wondering how we ever ended up on our faces. Any pursuit of satisfaction that comes from the creature and not from the creator or the savior will ultimately come to an end. And that's where we find this young man, face down with the pigs. But in God's design in this story, we find a mercy hiding behind this bitter experience. Let's read on, verse 17 through 19. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. We see that this man came to his senses. He began to see clearly For the first time. When the curtains finally got pulled back. This boy sees with crystal clear clarity. How blind he had been. We used to have a pastor here who passed away. His name was Rollin Jump. He was a dear friend. And he used to say sin is insanity. And if you really back up and think about sin. It's not rational. It, it doesn't make sense. The, the, the roads we will go down and the consequences we'll face to pursue sin make no sense. 
It's completely irrational. <coughs> and yet the enemy will blind our eyes in unbelief. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, so that we, we live in unbelief. We don't see the irrationality of our actions when we, when we live in sin. And there are those moments where the curtain gets rolled back and where we have those aha moments. I'll never forget, I heard an interview from Ted Bundy. I'll keep this somewhat cryptic because of the audience, but um, Ted Bundy was a serial killer in the 1970s. And uh, he was um, given the death sentence, but he claimed faith in Christ in prison and he requested James Dobson to come for an interview the day before his execution. And he wanted to send the world a message about what he had done and how he got to where he ended up. And he said he grew up in a good Christian home. You would have thought he was a good kid. And he took those baby steps towards really dark places. And I'll never forget, James Dobson said, tell me what it was like after your first victim. What, what went through your mind? And he said, I saw more clearly than I had seen in over 10 years. And he had been deceived. But it was so severe that he didn't tell anyone. And the enemy kept him in the darkness. And his worldly passions stirred up in him inclinations to do it again. But, but he said, there was crystal clear clarity of what I had done. And I, it was like I was a monster who had finally had eyes to see. And that's what happens. And in God's mercy, this young man has eyes to see when he can make a difference, when he can make a change. And so with fresh perspective, this young man reasons with himself and he humbly admits his sin and he makes a plan to make amends with his father. He recognizes he has no grounds to claim his sonship. He's going to go back, not even expecting to be considered a son. And the fact that he says, make me a hired servant instead of a slave is probably because he's hoping his father will allow him to become an apprentice by one of his tradesmen and actually make some money to pay his father back and to maybe restore the family's honor. This man had a plan to make amends because he finally came to his senses. And so he gets up and he returns home. <clears throat> Let's see what happened. Verses 20 to 24. He arose and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called a son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead 
and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. What a return. What an amazing return. What a surprise. Knowing what this boy could face, to face his father with compassion and mercy, what a surprise. Jesus wants to let us in on the heart of our Heavenly Father, who never forgets a child who's gone astray. Never too busy to be on watch for their return. Always on the lookout. Always positioned to pounce with kindness and compassion when a wayward child comes home. Many of you in this room have children who are wayward and you know how you would run if they came home. And that's the heart of our Father. Running was not appropriate for a dignified patriarch. It was shameful for a man in that culture to show his legs and he would have had to raise his robe to run. And again, Jesus is communicating to us that the compassion of a father is not confined by the cultural norms. He does not care about his reputation when it comes to pursuit of his children. And though this son could be legitimately disowned and killed, he was received back with joy and a party. Before his confession is even complete, the father commands his servants to go get him a robe, which is a sign of nobility. To give him a ring, which is a sign of sonship. To put shoes on his feet, because to take your shoes off was to show you were mourning. And there was no mourning on this day. It was only celebration. And shoes also signify that you were not a slave, you were a son. Younger brother coming home naked with nothing, yet is lavished with gifts from his father. What an amazing and gracious response. Totally unexpected. And this is the heart of our Heavenly Father. But this is not where the story ends. There's another scene with another brother. Verses 25 to 32. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked, what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed a fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. He refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, I've never disobeyed your commands, yet you never gave me a young goat, and I'm, that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. 
All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother, your brother, was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, this is what the story is really all about. If you go back to verses 1 through 3 of chapter 15, this lets us in on who Jesus is talking to. There were tax collectors and sinners who were drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So that's why he told these parables. He's he's making a point about the attitude of the Pharisees. And what he's saying is, while God's celebrating sinners coming home, religious, self-righteous, older brothers can't seem to celebrate what God's doing. He's exposing the hearts of these men. These men were blinded by their pride. And Jesus is saying, the the older brother is just as lost as the prodigal. He doesn't even know it. Both brothers wanted their dad's stuff more than they wanted their father. The younger brother wanted to go out and spend it foolishly. But the older brother slaving away and disgruntled that he's not getting calves and he's not getting goats and he's not getting parties. But he has the father. And they both want the father's stuff and not the father. And his good works prohibit him from seeing it. And he tells his father, basically, yeah, you got this younger brother who's willing to come home and be a servant, but you treat me like a servant. You've never celebrated me. You've never thrown a party for me. You've never even offered me a goat, which is a tenth of the price of a calf. And he's bitter. He's been working away in his good works have tempted him to think that his father is entitled to treat him to good things. As if his father's now in his debt for his good works. And so it's not his bad behavior that keeps him from his father, it's actually his good deeds. And they're both lost. And the father, like with the prodigal, goes out to this brother in the field. In mercy. He could have... He could have treated this brother just as severely as he could have treated the other because he publicly shamed his father by not coming in to celebrate. By boycotting his father's celebration, he publicly shamed his father. By talking to his father. Do you notice that? Do you notice what he said? He doesn't even call him father. He basically says, look you. And this son of yours, he doesn't except his father or his brother. See that in verse 28. He answered, or 29, he answered his father, Look, you, all these years I've served you, never disobeyed you, you've never given me anything. You know all that extreme language, never, 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 always. Verse 30, but when the son of yours came, 
He doesn't even accept his own brother. Blinded by his pride. Treating the father as if he knows better than the father on how to treat his wayward brother. Probably bitter. Because not only is his dad throwing a party, but it's at the older brother's expense. Because the younger brother's already spent his inheritance. And the two-thirds that remain are the older brother's. So he just got my robe, he just got my ring, he just got my shoes, and he just got my calf. And he's mad. And he doesn't feel he deserves such treatment. And no disrespectful, the father goes out in mercy and compassion. Not treating him as his actions would deserve. And this is a subtle temptation for those who are in the church. It's so easy. I think it was Luther who said every prodigal has a temptation of becoming an older brother. Where you begin to look down your nose at other people where we feel that God owes us a good life because of our obedience. This was a temptation of Job. You remember that in the Old Testament? Job was a righteous man. He sacrificed even for his kids' sin. Satan goes to God and he says, well, the only reason he serves you is he's, he's got an awesome life. He's got prosperity. He's got health. He's got family. Take that stuff away and he'll curse you and die. So God says, okay, put him to the test. And Job passes the immediate test, but there are 30 plus chapters where he questions God. And he can't reconcile in his mind how bad things could happen to him because he's a good person. And he wants to call God to trial because he's a good guy. And God shows up. And Job covered his mouth and wished he'd never spoken. Because when the God of the universe shows up, you realize what you deserve. You may think your good deeds put you in a good position with God, but when the holy, just, perfect God stands in our company, we all recognize our deep need of grace. And religious people can forget about grace. Similar to Jonah, right? Jonah was this guy running from God. Good Jewish prophet. God calls him to go to Nineveh. These nasty Gentiles. He doesn't want to do it, so he runs away. God could have killed him. He threw him out of the boat. He gets swallowed by a whale. He pleads for mercy. So he gets grace. He gets mercy. But God doesn't let him off the hook of his mission. So he spits him out on land and says, hey, go to Nineveh. So he goes, begrudgingly, preaches, revival breaks out. And he sits up on a hill and he bickers. He can't celebrate the grace of God coming to sinners. And he tells God, see, I told you, I knew you would do this. You're a compassionate, 
merciful God. This is why I didn't want to come. I know better than you, God. And we forget the grace and mercy in our own lives and and we fail to celebrate when God does it in others. And Jesus is saying here, man, if you're my people, celebrate sinners coming home. This is what is brings joy and gladness to my Father's heart. We throw parties in heaven when sinners come home. And so should His people. We should be joy-filled, celebratory people. He approaches all of His lost children, good or bad, with compassion and mercy. This is children, we should not be quick to judge others and look down upon them with resentment or suspicion. So easy to do that. But if they come to their senses and come home, we should celebrate. Of all people, we should know how to celebrate because of what God's done in our lives when we see Him doing it in others' lives. a couple ways I want to maybe bring this home to us. One is, you know, I think we can read these parables, especially this one, and think of our salvation experience, you know, when we first come to know Jesus. But if you've lived the Christian life for any amount of time, we have to constantly come home. And, and we may have a tendency to swing the pendulum one way or the other, you may have more of a temptation in your life to be self-righteous versus self-indulgent. But we have tendencies. And when we lose our heart for our Father, we will get on a road that takes us to destruction. And we have to constantly come home. We have to constantly cultivate a heart for our Father. Not for His stuff, but for God Himself. And we're constantly fighting this pull of our heart to go other places, and we have to remain centered. This is a lifestyle of repentance. Because when we don't pursue God for God Himself, we will drift. And we will look for love in all the wrong places, either in religious good deeds or in worldly passions. And neither will satisfy. Neither will bring lasting joy. Both break the heart of our Father. Both require us to return home in repentance and faith. You know, when I moved here about 10 years ago, um, I came from Greenville, South Carolina, which is pretty conservative area. Didn't think I'd be moving into another one. Um, But I'll tell you what, as I've reached out into this community and as I've met people and tried to love on people and have tried to enter in in gospel ministry with people, there is a significant number of prodigals in this community from older brothers in the church. Significant number prodigals 
because they came into contact with older brothers in the church. Judgment. Suspicion. Joyless, law-driving Christianity. And they walked away. And it doesn't excuse them going to the places they've gone. But our actions do have an effect. Facebook posts that seem to hate people coming out of the church people's mouths. Some of the things that went on during the last election that just fuel the fire of these prodigals because of the older brothers that have voices in our churches. Quick to boycott things and picket stuff. Always seeming to have an undercurrent of anger and judgment and very little joy or celebration. More, more oriented and, and, and engaged with the justice of God and the mercy of God. Lack of compassion. How different would it be if we were people in the center? We were people who lived with a heart for our Father. People who recognized our tendency to drift in our ongoing need of grace and mercy as we return home. How different would it be if those prodigals came into our church in our gathering together and observed humble, celebratory, joy-filled Christians who are deeply grateful for all that the Father has done and deeply aware of their need of grace themselves. How much different would it be? There's a great emphasis in this parable on celebration. Celebration of lost sinners coming home because of the compassion and mercy of God. And as His people, we should be marked with compassion and mercy and celebration. And this is all made possible because of Jesus, who's the better older brother. He's the firstborn of all creation. We were the younger brother who squandered the inheritance God gave us, squandered the grace we've received. And in our rebellion and sin, we chose to find our satisfaction in another country. But Jesus, the better older brother, on his own account, brings us back home. And he robes us in his righteousness. And he seals us with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. And he doesn't shed the blood of a calf. He goes to the cross and sheds His own blood to purchase us as sons and daughters so that the Father can show compassion and mercy for sinners coming home. And because of that reality, our hearts should be filled with adoration, with joy, with celebration. 
Because God celebrates over us. And Jesus tells this story so we know God's heart is to celebrate sinners coming home. And our better brother purchased that pathway for us. What a Savior. What a reason to celebrate. Amen? Amen. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to have the worship team come back. We're going to close with a song on the sufficiency of Christ. And I pray that will resonate in our hearts as we sing together. Let's pray.